This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. 5 p.m. in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Um, Alex, today, equity market's not doing very much. Uh, the dollar is back. Uh, you've got commodities under pressure on China. Um, we're watching what is happening at the uh, the CBI, where the Prime Minister made a speech a little bit earlier on after a weekend of Brexit talk returned. And then, of course, well, there's the football, which I know you're hugely interested in. Guy's literally been mocking me all day. Look, I am not a sports person. We've got, we got a whole month of this. Okay, it's Brilliant. True. Earlier in my career, I pretended to front the sports things when I had to, and I realized that was like an epic fail. So you can guy-splain me all you want when it comes to the World Cup. Excellent. Let's go. The that downside is my of this Christmas is probably, gift to you, and I won't mock may, you for it. We may talk about contangos at one point or another. I'm just warning everybody out there that there may be a, a price to pay for that. No, no, no. No, this is a genuine offer. Happy Christmas. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yep. Cough it up. Cough it up. Guy's sick, I, by I, the way. I, I, I will enjoy this. Uh, yeah. So we play. I have to say, though, that Alex is not here on Friday. I'm not. When but, England play the United States of America. But I will. I will find a way to listen or watch the game whilst I online no, shop on my phone. I'm just putting that out there. Not. I will. Okay. I promise. Alex is going to be live tweeting during the England uh, England USA game on Friday. Everybody should make sure that they follow that. Alex Steele on Twitter so that we can all get our live updates and Alex's view on how the game is going. I didn't say you could mock me. You could just guy explain me. These are different <laughs> things. These are different things. To guy, okay. they feel similar, but they are different. They are. They're, in fact, they're, yeah, they are synonymous. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> Let's talk to Charlie Pellet. Let's find Let's out what's it. actually going on. Charlie, over to you. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Shell says it will evaluate its plan for as much as £25 billion of UK investments and push for changes to the expanded windfall tax announced by the government last week. In an effort to shore up the public finances, Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt announced last week in the second of the second tax raid on the UK oil and gas industry this year. Meta Platforms is facing demands that it stop harvesting personal data for targeted ads in a fresh UK lawsuit that goes to the heart of Facebook's business model. Tanya O'Carroll, a technology and human rights campaigner, filed the suit at London's High Court challenging Facebook's so-called surveillance advertising, this according to the law firm that is representing her. Twitter's head of France announced his departure in a tweet ahead of what may be additional layoffs of the embattled platform, and Virgin Atlantic Airways is calling on regulators to ensure London's Heathrow Airport returns to full capacity next summer and linked his support for a third runway to measures that improve competition with British Airways, such as Virgin's own dedicated terminal. And Iran's football team refused to sing their national anthem at their opening World Cup game against England today, a gesture widely seen as a pledge of support for anti-government protests back home. The team suffered a bruising 6-2 defeat against England in Doha, Cutter. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pennett, thank you very much indeed. Charlie, we'll be back in around 30 minutes' time to update on what is happening with the headlines. Uh, in the meantime, let's get back and figure out what's been happening in Birmingham today. So, 
Alex, this weekend, the news agenda here in the UK was dominated by weekend press reports, Sunday Times, etc., suggesting that the UK government was looking at the idea of some sort of Swiss-style relationship with the EU that would allow it access to the single market, may allow um, a change in the migration status, immigration status that, that will resolve some of the problems the British business is having. Um, it was clearly a kite flying exercise. Balloons were being flown. I'm mixing my metaphors here, I appreciate, to try and sort of gauge how such an idea would go down. It is now out there. The, the, the right wing of the Conservative Party, the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party, clearly pushed back very strongly. And today we've got the same thing from the Prime Minister. Under my leadership, the United Kingdom will not pursue any relationship with Europe that relies on alignment with EU laws. Having the regulatory freedom to do that is an important opportunity of Brexit. And that's my agenda, and I'm confident that that agenda is not only right for the country, but can deliver enormous benefit for people up and down the UK in the years to come. Unequivocally, and you heard it in my speech, it's important that government creates the conditions for stability, uh, for making sure that we tackle inflation. But that's just the foundation. Now, all of us collectively need to build on that foundation. And what my role is, what the government's role is, is to ensure that we can unlock all of the things that we want you to do and what you will want to do, whether that's investing more in new machinery and equipment and automation, whether it's investing in R&D to create the products and services of the future. The Prime Minister answering questions in Birmingham at the Confederation of British Industries conference. Um, Alex, as you've been saying throughout the day, though, once this idea is out there, it's out there. Yeah, and we were talking about it. We spent half our show talking about it. So clearly, if you already have to deny it, you're already talking about it. So how do you then walk it back? But I think that the point is, is that you guys have a really big problem there <laughs> in terms of uh, labor and your economy and Brexit. I don't know how all of those are going to fit into the right holes. Well, the problem is, though, that we have a, an economy that is, that is structurally facing some huge challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, we, have an, we have a labor shortage, an immigration issue, uh, which is being exacerbated by Brexit. So I, I wonder where this leak came from. Maybe it came from the Treasury. I don't know. Uh, let's talk a, about Yeah, no, let's talk about it with Joe. Let's, let's, go to Joe. let's talk about it with somebody that might actually know the answer to that question. Joe Mays, Bloomberg UK <laughs> Government and Treasury reporter. Joe, I... The UK economy, the latest data are grim. The the autumn statement was grim. There are there are very few big levers the British government can pull to make a significant economic difference. Having some sort of a Brexit arrangement that looks like the Swiss deal would have that effect. How seriously should we take this? Yeah, I think you know what's happened here is that we have the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt last week saying on the record on the radio that the UK wants to you know, remove economic friction with the EU, and that's the kind of long-term ambition it has. But as soon as he said that, the question you have to ask is, well, how would you achieve that? And that would be through bilateral deals in certain areas to get rid of barriers. And that's what Switzerland has uh, through lots of deals, you know, more than 120. So I guess that's what's happened here. Someone like the Sunday Times report took to its logical conclusion that Jeremy Hunt's comment, and now we're all talking about the specifics of how you achieve that. But it does feel like this has got kind of a bit out of hand further than what the UK government will be doing in the short term. But that, that is effectively what has happened. And yes, you're right, there could be things on migration. There could be things on you know, alignment with certain rules. I mean, we should not just rule that out, but 
we have to get into the specifics of what you mean by removing trade barriers with the EU. And that, that's, that's where this discussion has now gone to. So this is a really dumb question. Does the British public still think Brexit is a good idea? It feels like month after month, if you look at polls, support is actually declining. I appreciate that the party base is still really pro-Brexit, but is Britain? No, the, the, you're right. There is increasing polling, which shows that the British public thinks that it was a mistake to have left the European Union. But that doesn't mean there's any kind of consensus about what the UK should do instead. And that's why as soon as someone suggests an idea such as a Swiss-style relationship where you have bilateral deals, but it means you might have to have more migration from the EU, you might have to pay into the EU budget, you might have to follow some EU laws. People say, oh, no, we don't like any of that stuff because that was what we voted for, what we voted against when we voted for Brexit. So there's a complete absence of consensus on what you do instead of uh, being uh, outside the European Union. And that, that's really the issue here. This country has still not got any kind of settlement on, on what the alternative should be. How, how did you? How have you read the response to this story, not only from Sunak but also from the ERG, the the kind of the right wing Brexit supporting end of the Conservative Party? I, I, I was trying to think about this. There's kind of two ways of reading it. If the response had been kind of quite small, it might have implied that that they're on the back foot. But it might also imply that they think it'll never happen and are quite relaxed about sort of silly ideas like this. The fact that we've had such a vicious response to it. Does that imply that they're worried? Yes, I think they are worried because recognize that Jeremy Hunt was someone who was on the Remain side of the Brexit uh, referendum campaign, and he's now in a very influential and powerful position in government. So clearly that right wing of the Tory party fears that the kind of balance of power has shifted back towards those who would like a softer relationship with the EU, and actually someone who has the power to achieve that because they have the levers of government in front of them. So I think, I think that's why they are worried. I think the other notable thing today was how strongly the likes of Nigel Farage came out against this idea. And it is a still genuine threat to the Conservative Party that the far-right movement grows in influence and you know, public uh, presence and steals votes from Conservative parties at general elections. That's what David Cameron always said when he was Prime Minister. I mean, that's why he promised a Brexit referendum in the first place. So Sunak has to be alive to that. I think that's why he came down so strongly today you know, against the idea, because he wants to kind of quell that kind of movement. But he's trying to tread this very tricky path between improving the EU relationship but not completely fanning the flames and antagonizing the righteous party. Yeah, doesn't sound hard at all. Um, so then let me get this straight. So then what, what other options would Sunak be considering to help the labor problem if none of the if the Brexit thing is going to keep going through as Brexit and none of that's going to be adopted? Well, we have this kind of new post-Brexit immigration system, a points-based system quite similar to what Australia has, where you can, you know, set the parameters a bit lower to allow more skilled workers to come in. So, you know, within the framework of the post-Brexit immigration system, you can let more people in if you want to. You just, you just say, OK, we're adding some more shortage occupation lists. We're adding more areas where we'd like to bring people in. So, you know, it's within the power of the Home Office, within Sunak's power to do that. It's just a question of, you know, to what extent does he do, does he do that? You know, how difficult does he make it for people to come in? Yeah, so there, there, there's still flexibility there that he can use. Is the perception in in Westminster that there are actually very few economic levers that can be pulled at this point that are going to have a meaningful effect? What is is there a belief within the Conservative Party that the economic trajectory that the new Chancellor has put the UK on is the right one? I, we've stabilised the markets, but 
increasingly I talk to people who wonder whether or not there is a growth plan, whether the Conservatives have a growth plan. And if they don't, how dangerous that will be, not in the short term, but in the mid to long term. Yeah, the lack of a growth plan is the big worry amongst Conservative MPs. And yes, if they are being honest with you, they'll say they can't see how a meaningful change to growth could come through doing anything different with the EU. Because the kind of things we're talking about, so, you know, meaningfully bring down big trade barriers, would be things like significant alignment of laws with the EU, would be things like going back into the single market, but accepting freedom of movement. And the Tory party sees those as massive red lines they shouldn't cross. So you kind of park the idea that kind of a better yeah. EU relationship is going to somehow save growth for the UK. The, the, the party wants to see something else. They want to see other things, which, yeah, we haven't, we haven't really seen enough of that. What, their, what about their, the Labour yeah. Party? Just, what has been the Labour Party's response to this idea? Well, the Labour Party is softer on the question of aligning with the EU in some areas. They, for example, argue that we should be aligning with the EU on things like food and plant health rules, because if you did that, it would remove a lot of the paperwork that you have to use when trading between the UK and the EU, and that's been a big problem that's hurt trade. So they don't see it as a kind of theological issue that you can never align with the EU on on some things. They think you can. So that's one area where they're kind of... uh, more to the centre ground than the Tories. In terms of migration, I think Keir Starmer's going to speak at the CBI tomorrow. Yeah. I think we expect them to perhaps have a slightly softer line on migration. So yeah, they're, they're, they're slightly softer than the Tories, but not, not by no means kind of being pro-EU. They know that's very dangerous for them to be electorally. But nonetheless, you, you pair that then with the austerity that Jeremy Hunt had to line, uh, line out last week. Do, what, can the Labour Party capitalise on all of this headed into the next couple of years in terms of an election? So on the Brexit stuff, it, it's difficult because, as I said, they, they don't want to be seen to they, they want to be outflanked by the Conservatives as you know not not truly committed to Brexit. They're still a bit worried about that issue. So put that to one side. I think on the economy, that is their hope. Their hope is that they will be seen as credible. They'll hope that the public you know still remember the Liz Truss era. They'll hope that the public blame the Conservatives for the massive hit to living standards people are experiencing, and it's going to get worse in the months ahead. That's their hope. But I mean. What Rishi Sunak will try to do is say, look, you know, we have the best plan. Labour wouldn't be doing anything better than, than us. Remember how they crashed the economy, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it was. So, yeah, it's not a done deal for Labour that they can capitalise on this economic situation. Uh, just another quick question. I've got a minute left. If the UK wanted a Swiss type deal, would Brussels be prepared to give it to us? Well, I think, yeah, we have to be careful when we talk about a Swiss type. It's, it, it's a relationship rather than an individual deal. because it would be lots of yeah. bilateral deals. So then the question is, would Brussels be willing to give us one? Well, it would very much depend on the conditions they have. And often when we have, as they have at the moment with Switzerland, it requires things like, you know, aligning with rules on certain areas. It requires things like perhaps sending money to the EU budget in certain areas. So the EU would have their conditions for sure. Um, it's just about whether the UK would be willing to, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to agree to them. Joe, really appreciate it. Amazing reporting as always. Joe Mays joining us on Brexit that will just never die. Um, coming up, oil price is actually finding a bottom here. OPEC apparently denying a report uh, that they will be increasing production. Uh, we'll break that down a little bit more and sort of the volatility within the market as well. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So let's get a quick check in here on what's happening in the oil market. So Brent is off by about 1.8%, WTI off by 2 
at some point earlier in the day, we were off by about 5%. I mean, crude was getting really hammered. There was a report earlier um, that Dow Jones had said that OPEC Plus was considering adding oil to the market to help offset any Russian oil that may have come off the market when um, the West impose, when the G7 imposes their oil price, their oil cap um, in December 5th. Now, just a few moments ago, um, the Saudi oil minister came out and denied that report. They said that OPEC Plus is ready to intervene in the market if necessary, um, but that they're denying any reports currently of an OPEC hike. Plus, you add in what's happening over in China, potential sh- shutdown, COVID cases rising, etc., and that's putting pressure on the broader commodity market. So let's get more insight here um, with Julian Lee. Uh, he joins us, Bloomberg Oil strategist. Hey, Julian, can you just help me set the stage for the oil price move that we've seen today? The last six days have been really interesting in terms of the volatility and the decline in the oil price. Why has it happened? I think it's happening because uh, demand concerns are uh, moving to the center of of people's attention. Uh, People had been very concerned previously about supply, uh, particularly with this this, uh, EU ban on uh, Russian oil imports uh, due to to come into effect in uh, a little under two weeks' time now. and that was that was leading people to worry that there wouldn't be uh, enough supply. But I think things have, have shifted in the last few days and people are now much more worried about uh, rising COVID-19 cases in China. There'd been a, a lot of expectation of an easing of some of the restrictions which would uh, result in higher Chinese oil consumption. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. Things are going in the opposite direction. Uh, Cases there are spiking again. Um, More lockdowns look inevitable, and that has really undermined, uh, I think, people's uh, expectations of Chinese demand growth. Uh, You add to that, I think, the sort of rumbling concerns about uh, recession, um, about a contraction in oil demand, uh, in other parts of the world, Europe in particular, uh, you look at, at um, some of the, the forecasts that came out last week. I think OPEC um, cut their uh, fourth quarter oil demand growth uh, forecast again. So, um, again, even from the producer group, a little bit more um, caution about demand. And I think it's that that's feeding into the market. Perhaps, you know, um, boosted a little bit by um, a belief that at least in the initial stages, Russia will be able to continue diverting uh, its crude supplies to Asia. Uh, The US government has introduced a a waiver um, on shipments that are made before um, this ban comes into effect, but but that will arrive um, at their destination by Mm mid-January. So that gives a a bit of a, a window there. Just, just to come back to some specifics of this story that was floating around a little bit earlier on, why would why would Saudi be hiking output? I appreciate all the stuff about the Russians, but why would Saudi be hiking output when Russia when when oil prices are falling? That's that was the first thing that kind of struck me about the story. It just seemed incredibly odd. Yeah, it, it seemed odd to me. I mean, I think there were two things that struck me. One was that that with you know with with Brent prices as they were at that point you know, somewhere around $85 a barrel. Why would the Saudis be talking of increasing output when, you know, a month ago they were, uh, with oil prices around the same level, they were actively pushing for cuts. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second thing was, 
that, you know, if, if the last six months or so have shown us anything, it is that the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, at least in certain areas, is pretty strong. Um, the last yep. thing I could see Saudi Arabia doing was was sort of increasing output to take market share from Russia in, in right. this, this but, sort of kind of environment. But did we learn, though, that the reaction function, even though they're denying the report, is the reaction function if Russian oil is taken off the market because no one's going to be buying it, um, does that mean that Saudis are going to make up for it? Like, is that what we, in essence, learned today? Well, I, I, I'm not sure that we did learn that. I mean, I think that's what everybody is is looking at, what will happen um, if we lose a substantial uh, amount of, of Russian supply and the market does tighten, um, will there be a point where Saudi Arabia and, and perhaps the United Arab Emirates uh, step in with uh, higher exports to, um, to offset some of that loss? I mean, the other interesting thing that we, we've seen in the last few weeks is a first cargo of Russian crude being delivered to a refinery uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Now, mm. so far, it's only been one. It may well be a, a test cargo that they're going to put through the refinery to, to see how it, uh, you know, to see how the refinery works on that kind of a crude. But that could provide an important lifeline, uh, both for Russia and, and for international markets. If uh, if the UAE buys heavily discounted Russian crude, freeing up more of its own exports to, to go elsewhere. Um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Treasury is very concerned uh, to try to cut the revenue that Russia derives from its oil exports without cutting the volume. Um, and that is the idea behind this price cap that uh, they are trying to introduce um, and which we expect uh, we may this week finally uh, hear where they're going to set that cap. What is your expectation? I don't have one at the moment. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, having said that, I, the early talk was that they wanted something that was very aggressive, that was not too yeah. far above the cost of production. I, I think that position has eased. I, I think we will see something uh, that is... Uh, well above the cost of production, um, below the current price. I mean, the, the, the current thinking seems to be somewhere around $60 a barrel. Mm -hmm. um, what, what we do know or what we have been told is that it will be um, set at a fixed price. It won't be set at, at a, a, a discount to uh, one of the right. benchmarks. It will be a fixed price and it will be reviewed periodically, presumably depending on how the market evolves. Interesting stuff. Mm. Julian, thank you very much indeed. We didn't, we didn't get to talk enough about contangos, I think, during this conversation. He's baiting me. I'm not taking the bait. You are baiting me, and I'm not taking it. We'll see. <laughs> Plenty, half an hour still to go in this show. Anyway, China. this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. And by the way, happy Monday, everybody. Um, let's get a quick check in here on U.S. markets. So the Nasdaq getting hit the hardest down by over 1%. The S&P around the lows, the session off by six-tenths of 1%. Uh, oil off its lows, as we were just discussing. The dollar, though, continuing higher. And the curve here in the U.S. continuing to flatten that 210 spread. Just can't seem to get a break. Um, it is a little bit less bad, I guess, but we're still looking at 70 basis points with the spread between the twos and the 10. That can't mean anything good about the U.S. economy if you're looking at 70 basis point spread between the two. Um, 
Anyway, that's a quick, quick snapshot here. Now let's get update with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the UK is not prepared to align itself with EU laws as part of their post-Brexit relationship, pushing back against reports that his government is exploring the potential for Switzerland-style ties with the bloc. Sunak's administration is under growing pressure from business to ease economic friction with the EU, Britain's largest trading partner amid polling which increasingly shows Britons regret the split. The Bank of England is delaying plans to move hundreds of staff from London to Leeds as the economic turmoil slows the government's leveling up agenda. A spokesman said the central bank was, quote, revisiting our plan and timetable, but our presence in Leeds will continue to expand. And Britain's markets watchdog has warned operators of stock trading apps to review and potentially change design features in including so-called game-like elements, which could encourage customers to invest beyond their means. The Financial Conduct Authority says problematic features include providing users with in-app points, badges, and celebratory messages for making trades. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. I mean, are people going to really stop trading because they don't get a ding, ding, ding and like balloons? Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the concerns. But uh, certainly does, you know, it's the so-called gamification of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's raised a lot of concerns. And I might add, not just in the U.K., but also here in the U.S. as well. It's true. It's very true. Um, okay, let's get to another one of our top stories, and that's uh, China. So you could arguably make the case that... China and worries about its COVID policy and growth there really did kick off the commodity slide and the heaviness in the equity market earlier today. Um, so let's get more to that. Um, it had its first related death in almost six months on Saturday. Two more were reported on Sunday. The outbreak of COVID is worsening across nations. And a city that was near Beijing, apparently, that was rumored to be a test case for ending virus restrictions, has now suspended schools, locked down universities, and asked residents to stay home for five days. This does not feel good. This feels like two years years ago. Uh, Tom Orlick of Bloomberg Economics uh, joins us now, uh, chief economist, I should say, with Bloomberg Economics, uh, and he lived in uh, China for many, many years. Tom, when you hear this, that there's a little bit of school suspension, stay home for five days, is this the prelude to something bigger? Well, look, Alex, there was a lot of excitement in the last few weeks about some indications that China was moving a bit earlier than expected to ease COVID restrictions. And the markets see that, saw that as a move in the right direction and they rallied strongly. Um, but of course, exiting from COVID zero um, is not a easy thing to do. Um, and capable though they are, China's policymakers do not have a magic wand to make it into a smooth and straightforward process. Um, So sure enough, as soon as restrictions are eased, cases rocket back up. And here we are with concerns that controls are going to have to come back into place. Um, This is going to be the case until they decide that they are going to accept mRNA vaccines or have their own mRNA vaccines. Tom, isn't this just? Are we just going to be on an endless cycle now of reopening and closing? We've been on it for a while. What is ultimately going to change the narrative? 
I think that's the right guy. I mean, the solution, the way of sort of squaring the reopening without having a catastrophic public health impact um, solution is vaccination. Um, now, optimally, that would mean China either purchased uh, or developed itself the highly effective mRNA vaccines. Um, even without those mRNA vaccines, though, there is more that China could be doing. Um, they do have their own domestic vaccines. They're not as effective as the global leaders. But if you stick enough of them in people's arms, you get to a pretty high level of effectiveness. I think until China does that, we're going to be locked into this cycle of one step forward on reopening and then two mm-hmm. steps back to prevent a public health catastrophe. Tom, what do you think was priced in economically and market-wise in terms of China reopening that needs to now get priced out? So look, um, China's COVID zero strategy is not going to stay with us forever, right? We're not going to be having a conversation in 2025 where Chinese cities are still locked down and schools and universities are closing for five days. Um, So ultimately, we think around the middle of 2023, there's going to have been substantial progress towards reopening. Um, From an investor perspective, I think... Tom, sorry, just to stop you there. How? Middle of 2023. Why are we going to be further forward? Is it, is it Are they going to have their own vaccines by that point? So I think there's by the middle of 2023, Guy, I think three things are going to have happened. The first thing, which is incredibly obvious, but it's worth saying, is we'll be through the winter, right? Cold weather yep. is not a time to roll the dice on infectious diseases. Second thing is will have got past the National People's Congress. That's a key political moment in March next year. And it's when the next generation of leaders get their jobs in the government, right? Mm. So that's important because it means the decision makers will be in place and they can do stuff. And then the third thing, and this is where I'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen more progress so far, but I think we are going to see rapid progress in the months ahead, is the vaccine piece of it, right? So either that's the move to buy a bunch of mRNA vaccines, or it's the announcement that, guess what, we've done it ourselves, or most likely, it's some kind of mass campaign to use the vaccines they do have to stick into people's arms. So the excited market reaction we got in the last couple of weeks was to the signal that COVID zero was going to be easing. But what we didn't have then was the substance, right? We didn't have the substance, especially on the vaccines. Um, So from an investor perspective, if I was kind of looking for a moment to be more optimistic, I would be looking for some kind of announcement on vaccines, some kind of plan, some numbers which showed that shots were going into arms at a more accelerated pace. Is, Is the problem with their shots or the problem with uptake? So, look, I mean, we've talked a lot about China's capacity to kind of impose pretty draconian lockdowns, right? Um, For the last couple of years, Chinese cities have been experiencing lockdowns, which really you wouldn't be able to impose in a democracy for any length of time. If China can lock down entire cities, keep people locked at home for days, weeks, I think they can probably execute on a mass vaccination campaign, right? Um, So it's a bit mysterious that they haven't done so so far. But the big thing which I'm looking for in the weeks and months ahead is that vaccination program. We'll leave it there. Tom, thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Tom Orlick uh, joining us on what is happening in China. Alex, this is clearly going to have a massive impact on markets. It already is today. Um, 
basically, I think the commodity move today, I, we talked earlier about the fact that that we've got this sort of story surrounding Saudi adding extra oil into the market. This feels today, the commodity move that we're seeing more broadly is a China story. Yeah, it just and it also raised a question like how quickly we are to price things in now. Like next time where we think that China's opening up, is the reaction function a bit different? Or are we just so tilted one side to the market that any news, whether you're looking at CPI uh, out here or whether you're looking at China reopening, is, is enough to move the needle? I don't, I don't think I know yet. I don't know where positioning is enough to suss that out. Anyway, um, talking about positioning, we're going to talk about Disney and Twitter next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio The Cable. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, Guy, this feels like the perfect time to break down what's happening in the crypto market. Um, according to reports, how much that FTX actually owed. Some people ran as much as $3 billion. Um, will those people act? Unsecured creditors. Unsecured creditors. creditors. Will they get their money back? I don't know. You're unsecured. That that, that feels not Choosing very secure. Choosing the title. Yeah. I mean, Exactly. Um, also, there's some questions about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which was supposed to be really safe. That was going to be, remember, um, moved in to be a, an ETF. It didn't happen, but everyone's sort of advocating for that to happen. Um, but it's trading at a 45% discount uh, to its net asset value. That doesn't feel very good. So clearly, there's still contagion uh, going out, uh, uh, circulating all throughout there. Shanali Basic joins us now in studio. Shanali, after a weekend of potential losses, potential contagion. What is the question that you still have? What's the biggest outstanding thing? Where'd the money go? (laughs) I mean, there's a few things here. One is the FTX fallout itself. They have a bankruptcy hearing starting tomorrow in Delaware. So we'll be watching that and see if there's new information about the bankruptcy itself, the assets, what can be recouped, who gets the money if if it is. And then obviously we're talking about that other contagion. I think Grayscale is a really interesting thing to talk about because why does Grayscale matter? Grayscale, the Bitcoin trust, is one of the biggest funds allocating to Bitcoin. It's a way that a lot of institutional asset managers get money into Bitcoin. And it's interesting because there are, if you, oh my God, I follow the crypto markets way too closely. If you look at how people are speaking about it, they're having to answer a lot of questions like who custodies the assets? Well, Coinbase custodies the Bitcoin that has to be uh, inside of the trust ultimately. Are they going to do proof of reserves? They say they don't want to do proof of reserves because there are other security concerns associated with cryptographic proof behind uh, proving where all of your assets are more publicly to investors. And they're one of the biggest firms that are kind of uh, denouncing this idea of proof of reserves at a time where there's a huge industry call for doing more proof of reserves because people are worried about their assets, how they're held and where, where they yeah, go. Yeah, people want to know where this stuff is. I, this is the problem. So talking to people who, just, just anecdotally over the weekend, where is my crypto? Who holds it? If I've got it on an exchange, how much a risk am, am I? Do I need to move it into cold storage? I, these are the questions that are being asked. Like, so. Listen to this tweet, Guy, right, from Grayscale alone. To be perfectly clear, the underlying Bitcoin for Grayscale are owned by GBTC and GBTC alone. Like, can you imagine having to put out statements like that? Well, you know, actually, it reminds me quite a lot about um, the controversy around gold, physically gold-backed ETFs. Because even though that's an ETF and it's physically backed, there are lots of issues as to where it's stored, uh, who's the custodian, and it can be maybe stored at one bank, but then that bank stores it at another bank. And then all of a sudden, there are concerns about, well, where is my gold? This is even more nebulous than that. So, yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> to both of you is yes. Where's the money? Where's my money? When I put my money into a bank or if I put my money into a Bitcoin um, custodian or when I put my money into a Bitcoin exchange, where but, but then does again, it go? If you're an unsecured creditor, aren't you like aware that you're taking these risks? Listen, like, I appreciate you don't want to lose $200 million, but I still. I feel like I've been dreaming the last couple of years because I would have a Bitcoin executive on television and be like, hey guys, crypto, crypto lending, crypto exchanges, none of this thing has, you know, if you're in the lending world, you don't have FDIC insurance. And I would get asked that and people would be like, yeah, no, we don't. And right, it's like, right, well, do your right. clients care? It's like, no, they don't. <laughs> and I, I, I now am wondering so much why there was so much confidence of so many people around the world and by the way, there still is, right? Bitcoin itself okay. has never gone below 15000 this year. So uh, is there something that's fundamentally broken down with trust in financial markets, let alone crypto? Let's talk about contagion. How should we, as this story evolves, be thinking about contagion? Is this still contained or are we starting to see the impact being felt elsewhere? What's so important is this thing I've always been saying throughout this entire year, which is, so you had Three Arrows Capital fail earlier this year. BlockFi was a lender to Three Arrows Capital. They had to eventually halt withdrawals, but before that they looked for money and FTX gave them money. And now you're seeing the FTX problems unfold. You're seeing BlockFi potentially file for bankruptcy. We don't even know what happens to the BlockFi clients. Mm. So there's no way to tell you today, Guy, that yes, the contagion is contained. Because one by one, you keep on seeing new players that were entangled into each other. Mm-hmm. And by yep. the way, that started months ago. Well, well, also, it seems like part of the issue, too, is that if you use another token as collateral, but that token now gets taken down just by derivative effect effects, and I mean derivative, like just because everyone's freaking out and selling stuff, that that's going to cause more collateral issues, which then has more contagions. There's like multiple layers of contagion that may not specifically be related to FTX. Yeah. And like you think about some other companies, why are Coinbase bonds trading at 51 cents on the dollar? Right. If you want to take a bet on it, you can trade. You can play that. You can. And there yeah. are so many derivative plays here. And at the end of the day, when you're thinking about a Coinbase bond, you're thinking of the longevity of that company, not just hey, like, am I going to lose money on my stock, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and by the way, Coinbase is U.S. regulated exchange with tons of backing and support by some of the biggest financial institutions in the world, including NASDAQ, where it is listed, and its banking underwriters, which took it public. So let's talk about what happens next. When when does the next kind of element of this start to come out? Is it via the courts or is it by via another company having a problem? I, I'm trying to understand how the story evolves from here. Both. Let's talk about the courts just quickly because we're watching it unfold in real time. By the way, there are fights within the court systems. Mm-hmm. So yep. a liquidator tied to Bahama said, you know, there's a lot of that things that are not valid about the bankruptcy filing in the United States. So this is a jurisdictional issue in part. Then when you look at, and by the way, that is the nature of crypto. I think this is an existential fundamental question about the future of money and whether a digital money can work uh, and who owns it and who can regulate it because and and by the way and who can ultimately decide 
the rules of engagement when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. That's why today is so important. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Guy, on what falls next is we've been talking about certain companies that have had to halt withdrawals. That is that Genesis lending Mm -hmm. business and that Gemini business as well, the earn business. And we haven't heard from them for days, really. Mm -hmm. So where do they go next? They're the most immediate question marks, but there could be anything else on the horizon and that list of 50 creditors that were tied to FTX alone. Crazy. This is crazy stuff. Honestly, so much transparency. I I feel I've got a a lot of clarity on what is happening. It's just like the more you talk about it, the worse it gets. Yeah. Like we won't get answers for transparency. You don't get answers for a long, long time. Right. I mean, think of how long it it took for uh, Bernie Madoff to get answers. And that was like a clear cut Ponzi scheme. This isn't a Ponzi scheme. This is how people really invested. And look how messy it's going to be. The Bitcoin hopefuls say it survived Mount Gox in 2014. Yes, that's what everyone says. We've survived this long. Therefore, this is just another blip. Matt Miller has said that. I'm just saying. And to be fair, he's followed he's followed Bitcoin. I'm staying out of it. (laughs) I'm neutral. I'm not not opining on on what the fallout from this will be. No. I think it's way too early to make that. Regulation, for sure. Just in what capacity, how. Um, Shalai, thanks a lot. Shalai Basic joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Wonderful reporting. Um, It also just is transparency, but it's also like investors having to take ownership of the mistakes that they may have made. I don't know. Do do we make someone whole who's an unsecured creditor who who knew the risks? I don't know. There is this still. There, there is this belief still amongst a lot of investors that ultimately, government or some other entity will make them whole. Mm. And I'm just wondering whether that turns out not to be the case in this situation. Yeah. The retail investor always seems to be protected. You've got obviously a very different, difficult situation here here to manage because it, it's well out of the realms of uh, mm-hmm. the sort of the, the purview of government. Totally. Yes. Hundred uh-huh. percent. Anyway. I don't know how to make this turn, so you should, should we just do, do it. No, we're going to talk Twitter. Um, and Disney. And Disney. I think there's a, there, there's a lot going on. Um, where do you want to start, Disney or Twitter? Uh, let's do Twitter first. Okay. Ed Ludlow joins us to talk about Disney and Twitter. We're going to start with Twitter, Ed. Sure. Because that's where Alex wants to start. I for sure thought you were going to switch to Disney, by the way. But Okay. <laughs> I'm just I'm giving you the options. I like to give you the options. Um the 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 head of France for Twitter um, has quit, and he yes. basically said, "It's over." He did. So my question to you is, is that the direction of travel now? I, I don't think Twitter, as we know it, is over. Um, we've just reported in the last few minutes that a second round of layoffs is underway. Mm-hmm. Musk has started firing sales and marketing people, um, according to sources. Some of them notified on Sunday. The original cuts, 50% of the workforce, uh, which was a few weeks ago now, largely focused on engineering. But to your question, Guy, what we're hearing is that those that were not fired but left of their own volition, one reason they're leaving is that they just don't think Twitter can carry on with a thin staff such as it has now after these layoffs. But, you know, we we talked about this on TV, right? The question is, do you think Elon Musk can fix Twitter? And, you know, what I'm hearing from investors in the new entity, the private Twitter, but also those that back his other companies is like, yeah, he's done this before. He can do it again. So um, how much taunting do you think that Musk is going to give Trump to get Trump to tweet back on Twitter? Yeah, a lot. I mean, this is what is so hard about covering Elon Musk as a reporter, as a journalist. He did a Twitter poll where 15 million people purported to cast a ballot. I say purported because how many of those were bots? We don't Mm -hmm. know. But 52% of respondents voted in favor of reinstating Trump on the platform. 
Trump over the weekend made comments that actually he's not interested in returning to Twitter. He thinks Truth Social, his own social media platform, is working just fine. But the, the, the reason I say it's so difficult is Musk immediately, you know, resorts to memes and ridicule. The latest meme based on a Family Guy scene is is sort of the mum from Family Guy sitting at the table agonizing over a bottle of pills that is labeled Twitter. You know, it's just ridiculous to say it out loud on radio, but that's where we're at. <laughs> okay. So watch this space. Let's turn our attention to Disney. Yes. Bob Iger. He was out and they've reeled him back in again. And apparently they went to him in order to come back and run the company again. What is the problem at Disney that Bob Iger, the former CEO, former chair, is the answer to? Yeah. Going on the reaction of investors in the sell side, it's that Iger will be able to find profit in a business that's hemorrhaging money. You know, the full year full year fiscal 22 losses on the streaming side were $4.5 billion. And we started this year with Disney saying, we'll probably lose around $2.5 billion this year. Well, they didn't. They lost $4.5 billion. And those losses are just outpacing the growth in, in the revenue business. We've talked a lot recently, guys, about how subscribers have kind of stabilized across streaming. You know, look at Netflix, look at how Disney did in yep. the prior quarter. But at what cost? The cost is too great. And mm -hmm. I think the street thinks that Iger will fix that. So how? So we were talking to an analyst that said that the way he can do it is by actually, one of the ways, is by M&A and actually buying a library. Yeah. It feels like, I don't understand, <laughs> the street wants you to spend less money, so then you have to spend more money to then spend less money. Those ideas do seem slightly incongruous or competing, don't they? I mean, Bob Iger made his name in M&A, right? That was kind of his Midas touch, that the magic of his 15 years at CEO. Um, I, you know, it's also him as an operator. A lot of the, the research notes are leaning into this idea that, okay, he spent 40 years at Disney, 15 as CEO. A lot of those were some of the best boom times. Bring him back. He agrees to do it temporarily. Remember the news here. This is a two-year term. And in yep. that time, he has a remit to set strategy. But the other half of the remit is to help the board find a long-term successor. You know, it, it, the relationship between JPEG and, and Iger when he was executive chairman, of which he retired last December, was not good, according to reports. Um, you know, JPEG was not always the favored successor. Some of the other long-standing names at Disney left, and, and JPEG was kind of left there. So it's really interesting. Let me just ask you a slightly wild question. Oh, sure. Well, uh, why, does, why doesn't he just sell the whole thing to Apple? I don't know that it's a wild question. I mean, you, you think about the point you made about um, uh, Disney seeking a library, right? A piece of M&A just to buy content instead of footing the bill for funding it. You know, people have always said that, that of Apple. Why did Apple not? You and I have discussed it. Why did they not just yeah. buy Peloton? Disney's a slightly different beast. You know, you come with it, the legacy media businesses for linear te network. Yeah, but say you, say you sell all that lot off. So you sell ESPN on its own, right? Standalone, ESPN's yeah. worth money, right? And in some ways, you might actually, you might crystallize the value there that isn't currently being represented. You then figure out what to do with the linear business. But the, but the streaming business, which in so many ways is quite close to Apple already, there's a very strong relationship there over, over the years, obviously with Pixar, et cetera. Yeah. You just bolt that into, into Apple TV, which is struggling as it is. Gosh, I mean, the first, I mean, I don't really know what to say other than you you name a jurisdiction in the world that would allow that to happen for, you know, for Apple mm. to buy Disney. 
I ju- you just don't see it happening, do you? That, that this administration in the states doesn't seem to have appetite for an M&A. One's a hardware company. One's a software company. I know. Right? I, I just or a content I, company. I, I, you, the other interesting point of what you've just said is divestitures. You know, I think that there does come a point where you look at businesses, businesses in total, and all of the different things they do, and you wonder if they just cut their losses on some mm-hmm. of the legacy uh, network names. I, I honestly don't know, and I think the problem is, is that Iger is not doing interviews, and he won't tell us. So if you're listening, Iger, give us an interview. Oh, nicely, nicely done. Um, well, the analysts are telling to the cable us that, every night, by the way. Yeah, that he really wants. <laughs> to talk to the street that that's the whole point so anyway um ed thanks a lot always appreciate it ed ludlow uh, joining us there that wraps it up for guy and myself we will be back here tomorrow have a wonderful monday everybody we made it through day one you're listening to the cable this is bloomberg